Hello, Yarun. Hey, what's up, Tuck? Oh, you're trying to <laughs> trying to beat me at my own game, are we? Yes, <laughs> I, I found a pun, found and I'm going with it. Even if I have to destroy the holy intro that we have. Wow, breaking with the format. Well, I will admit, I was trying to think of a good one, but I was having a little bit of writer's block, so. <laughs> I'm gonna say it's funny, but I'm. I don't think I get it. <laughs> but, it's, but it's funny, Dylan. It's very funny. Please continue right. doing that. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. When I think of documentation, the first thing that comes to mind is writer's block because I am sitting uh. there staring at a blank page, and it is very painful. But Yarun, as always, we endure that pain for our dear users. Definitely true. <laughs> yeah. We will suffer through writing JavaScript. We will suffer through writing English words, all in the name of our users. And it's a very noble view, and of, I, I guess, all of us. Then, <laughs> <laughs> I was not trying to, pri to praise myself, but I guess I am. <laughs> it, I don't know about you, but it, it is. I, I do find it way more difficult than writing the code. Like, yeah, definitely agree. So maybe before we delve into that, what is our topic today? What is our topic? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it is writing great docs, not just good docs, because as Evan says in the Elm Philosophy tweet, it's not done until the docs are great. And I do love that as a sort of foundational principle in Elm. And, you know, I mean, when you write an Elm package, the docs are already pretty good as a starting point because you are required to have you know, types for all of your exposed APIs. And it comes with already a really good, easy to navigate set of documentation for your package. Like, honestly, better than almost any other programming language I've seen. But in addition to that, we go above and beyond and we try to make it a really good flow through reading that and getting up and running with our package. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about like, What, what do make docs great? What's the process for great docs? What should package authors be thinking about for making their docs great? How should users use that information to navigate docs? And, um, you know, and maybe whether those things are relevant for documenting an application. I think one of the reasons why we tend to have great docs in Elm is because all the tools and packages that we uh, enjoy using have great docs. So I think it's kind of a culture thing. Like in the Elm community, whenever we release something, we write great docs. Um, and it's kind of kind of the same as like, oh, well, every, every time we try to make something, we want it to be type safe. That's just the culture that we have. And it's one that has been with Elm for a long time. I, I don't know how long, but uh, at least before my time with Elm. And... Therefore, the expectation is that every time you write docs, it, it, uh, they have to be great. And that culture at the start is very important because now it's set in stone almost. And when it, whenever I see packages that are not great quality-wise or doc-wise, it's usually by someone who has just learned Elm and was just introduced to Elm and doesn't have the uh, expanded experience with Elm. And that's fine, I guess. Uh, like they're going to learn at some point. Interesting. So, so when you say uh, that you're, you've grown accustomed to Elm packages with great docs, 
Can you dig in a little bit to what that means to you? Like as a consumer of documentation, what makes them great? What are the things you notice about those packages? Well, maybe let's start with the first thing that is obvious, but also quite not obvious. Like the whole API of the package is documented, right? Like if I remember my NPM days or JavaScript days, uh, you had a package and the documentation for that package was the readme and maybe like an additional website, but it's usually like the readme and everything is in readme. More on that later, but I think. Uh, but the API that would be in the readme, sometimes it's just like an example like, oh, this is what you can do with this package. You can do this and they, they show a simplified example because uh, it's annoying to write a lot of documentation. And then that's it. Or they, they write uh, a lot of options, um, but it, they don't write all of the ways that you can use this package. So, uh, all the ways that, you, that are intended, nor the, the ones that are unintended, which makes sense, they're, they're unintended. But uh, I've seen a lot of packages where you would open an issue saying, oh, I would love to, to be able to do this. And they would answer, uh, oh, well, you can import this sub-module of the package and then you can do that but that's not documented and now like usually you would say oh now i'm in, in oh now i'm using uh, internals which is not good and in practice it's not good so yeah the, the fact that we have to document everything in the api or just that they're shown in the package documentation is already a great point i think in the elm world yeah, that, that definitely resonates with me. Like I, I can think of so many times when I've been trying to figure out how to do something with an NPM package and I'm searching through and often end up digging through obscure issues that I have to Google for and find some niche use of it that isn't documented or isn't documented in a clear place. Or, or I have to like search the, through the source code and see what it's checking for. If this object property exists, then do this. If it doesn't, then do that. So it's true. Like by, by virtue of publishing an Elm package, those things are documented. So that's the bare minimum for an Elm package. So another part is every API is um, shown, like all the custom types, all the functions that are theirs, um, that are there, all the type aliases. But when you, whenever you, you try to publish a package, one of the things that the Elm compiler will tell you is that some of the functions or some of the types are not documented and you need to. So Elm forces you to, to write documentation for all those exposed APIs, all those public APIs. So even if you don't think you're gonna write good docs for them, you have to carefully, or you have to make that decision um, purposefully. But sometimes like it's pretty easy to just write some document, some explanation. Oh, this function does this. And then, oh, well, I might as well add one little example. And now it's already, already very usable. So that's like that little nudge that asks you to, to write some documentation, even if it's empty, which I don't like, but it's more, <laughs> we could talk about that later. That little nudge already pushes you to to write some documentation and potentially to make it good. Right. So when you're, when you're consuming an Elm package, 
what do those docs look like when they feel like they're really helping you? And what, like, what's your experience? So that's one of the things I'm curious to dig into here too, is like, because I think in order to talk about great docs, I think it's really good to put yourself in the user's shoes. And we happen to be users of Elm packages and consumers of docs for Elm packages. So, so what is it like when, when we're looking at those beautiful Elm package docs, and they're not left blank and there's something written there. What, what do you, what is it that makes it really good? I think they always say like, this is a blazingly fast uh, package <laughs> right. to do something or no, wait, sorry. Yeah. That's, that's NPM. That's right. yeah. Sorry. I, I messed it up. The logo really helps you understand what it does too. Yeah. And, and the visual design and uh, <laughs> The 100 SEO score that you have. No, yeah. So usually when I look at a package, the first thing that I see is the name of the package, who made it, and then a description of what it does. Like, what is the purpose of this? Or what does this package help you with? Then some examples of how to use it. Uh, But also in some cases where you have, like, for instance, if you have like a package to parse some format, like, that's pretty obvious what it does. So you don't have to explain it yet, uh, too much. You have to explain how to use it, but not how it works under the hood or, or what are the advantages of the, using this approach. But whenever there's a, there are multiple alternatives to, to solution, say GraphQL uh, packages, what I often see is like the philosophy behind a package or the trade-offs or hopefully the trade-offs um, of the solution. So I think the explaining the philosophy or the trade-offs that are involved in this solution versus other solutions, uh, sometimes even referencing the other solutions uh, is a great thing to have in your, in your docs. And just saying it's blazingly fast is not necessarily helpful, especially if all of them <laughs> say that. <laughs> right, unless that's part of the philosophy and uh, it, unless it's a differentiator. Yeah, but then you would need to say like the the reason why it's blazingly fast is either we try this new approach or there's a trade-off like this is simpler, this doesn't handle all the edge cases, but for the normal cases it's going to be m- way faster. And that's something that you would like to to see. Right. If it's a drop-in replacement for dict except faster, that's the only thing that's different, then that's that's what you want to know. And that's a a good way to describe it. And maybe in that in that case, the package can also handle the more complex approach. Uh, but And then it's just like having the best of both worlds, I guess. Maybe in a somewhat convoluted way, maybe. Who knows? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think I'm looking for all those. So description, examples, philosophy. But yeah, uh, description of the APIs and how to use those and how to use them together through a guide or through examples. That's the kind of things that I'm looking for. Right. Yeah, I, that resonates with me as well. I would say when I go to open up the package documentation for an Elm package, as you say, often there will be a few alternatives and they have the same name. They're all called <laughs> Elm GraphQL or they're all called, you know, Elm Anydict or, you know, Elm Markdown or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, 
So I want to know, like the, the first thing I'm trying to find out as fast as possible is does this like, number one, can I use this for the problem I'm trying to solve? Because if, if I can't, I don't even want to consider if I like it or if I like its trade-offs, just like what problem can I use this to solve? Is this a faster dict? No, this is Elm GraphQL. Okay, well, then I'm just going to skip it. <laughs> <laughs> right. It better tell you that quickly. And uh, you don't have much of, I mean, I can say this from personal experience as a reader of docs. You do not have my attention for very long to, to tell me that. And if it's like a very long, long form description of things that doesn't just like right at the top in, in a topic sentence tell me exactly what it's doing and, and give me information to help me decide whether it's going to help solve my problem. I'm, uh, I, I might not stick around there. It's certainly not going to be a good experience lo looking through that package documentation. Because that, that's the first question I want to answer. Yeah. The, the, the thing is, like, the Elm ecosystem is pretty small for good and bad. And in this case, like, if you have two alternatives or even, like, four... Like you can spend a little more time digging whether a specific package works for you. Whereas in JavaScript, like you have 200 packages for the same thing. Uh, and yeah, you, you really want to go to the, the one that uh, strikes you the most. Right. But if it's, if it's like a somewhat subtle thing, if it's like, oh, it's a form package, And I, and I look at the readme and I, and I don't understand like what, what are the limitations? What are the, like, what are the things I can and can't do with this? Then I'm not gonna, and if I can't like find a live demo somewhere and then I might not dig into that much further because I'm going to end up going to something else and it's going to have this mystique that I'm not going to want to approach it. Yeah, what you say is that you want to know about the limitations of a package. You you want the the package author to be honest about something, right? Even right. if it sells not as well, yeah. Which is okay totally. because we're usually not getting paid for open source work anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just having some interesting discussions with uh, with Ryan, the author of Elmland and ElmSPA, and we were kind of talking about you know, Elmland or ElmSPA, Elmland is sort of a new version of ElmSPA versus Elm Pages, uh, because V3 is sort of blurring the lines a little bit because with Elm Pages V2, it was a much more narrowly scoped tool that was generating static sites. And with V3, you know, a site with authentication, you know, a site with um, user-specific dynamic content is now a use case that Elm Pages V3 supports. So it starts to get blurry. But so I, um, I, I tried really, it took a lot of thought actually to, to try to concisely summarize what is it that would make something not a good fit for Elm Pages V3. And what I finally came up with is like, well, there's this sort of architectural decision that you're making by using Elm Pages V3, which is that I would like to build an application which communicates with an Elm backend. That backend could be your build server uh, as you generate your static pages, or it could be 
a traditional server or it could be a serverless function. But there's some sort of Elm backend context. And every time you navigate to a page, it is communicating with that Elm backend to resolve data and then sort of bootstrap the page with that data. That, I believe, is a very compelling pattern, but that's a big architectural decision. And I think that I think that it's a compelling story that is a very strong way to build an application. But there, there are definitely certain clear-cut cases where it's not going to be a good fit. For example, if you're building a one-screen game, then that set of features isn't going to really help you with that. And loading textures and things like that is not what the Elm Pages backend task abstraction is designed for. It's not good for like going off for a hundred seconds and loading something. You want that done asynchronously in the background. Mm. It doesn't mean you can't use it, but it's not optimized for it, or it doesn't really need the features that Elm Pages V3 gives you. Yes, exactly. And and um, you know, similarly, like you can you can use that rule of thumb. Is this feature set serving my needs for the use case I'm building for? And do I want to make this architectural decision? So that's what I finally realized is like, okay, like a lot of the apps, you know, sort of more dynamic apps with authentication and things like that, you could choose Elm Land or Elm Pages. But the differentiator is, do I want to use this architecture? Because there are trade-offs that are associated with that. Like, do you do you want to go all in on using things that having a backend allows you to do? Cookie-based authentication and, you know, being able to do server-level redirects and being able to submit form data and handle that in the same context using the form API. If if you want to use those patterns in that architecture, then it's going to be a good fit. But not everybody is going to want to use that architecture. So that's the that's the differentiator. And it's it's not like one of them are, is good or bad, but you need to tell people very clearly, you need to help them make that decision. Because it you're the author of the tool, you have all of this context, and somehow you need to distill that down to the relevant information that someone needs to make a decision. Because that's what they're trying to do. They navigate to your tool, and the first thing they're trying to do is make a decision. Is this relevant to me? Is this usable? And is are there alternatives that would be better? So you need to help them make that decision. Absolutely. Yep. I think you're completely right. And then once you've decided that, you probably want to figure out how to use it. And again, like if... If you land on a tool, you go to the Elm Review package docs, you understand what sort of use cases it helps you solve, you decide you want to use it. How do I actually do something, anything, right? As quickly as possible. I, th- I think of this actually very similarly to how I think about, you know, coding, the coding discipline of do the simplest thing that could possibly work or finding the shortest path to green and, um, you know, taking, taking small steps to connect things where it's working in between. You don't want a long feedback cycle where it's like, okay, do these hundred steps, then you're all set. And then you can evaluate whether you like this package or not. Is what, then you can evaluate. Yeah. Then you can evaluate whether you like it and 
then you'll know whether you've done those hundred steps correctly at the end of the hundred steps. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, there's that thing as well. Yeah, yeah. I was still in the evaluating phase of the package where, yeah, you, you want to know whether it fits your use case well and whether there are any gotchas with it. Exactly, yes. So that's going to be a super frustrating experience on, on both accounts where you're like holding your breath, am I doing these steps correctly? And you're like, I don't have time to do 100 steps. I haven't decided whether to commit to this yet. I'm not like, I'm integrating this tool now. So you need to give like uh, an Ellie demo. Uh, you need to give a quick start guide, you know? Like, I'm not sure if uh, Elm Review has this right off the bat, like, but the Elm Review um, dash dash template flag is a great way to try it. So you can say, here you go. Here's a single command you npm install dash g and then you run this one command you don't even need to do that you can just install it through npx or you can just npx yeah it. right or you used to be able to i don't remember um uh, but yeah and and sure enough you do have you have that first thing you've got it and you've got it under a nice simple heading so okay so let's look at elm review stocks so the first thing i see is a topic sentence Elm Review analyzes Elm projects to help find mistakes before your users find them. Screenshot. That's awesome. Now I know what it does. I get a taste of the experience. It's a single sentence. It's not like a paragraph that I'm like, oh, do I have to decide what's meaningful in this long paragraph? It's a single sentence. Then there's a new heading. What does Elm Review do? It gives you a sense of what you're going to use it for. And then there's a new heading. Try it out. And it does indeed have the quick start command, npx elm review dash dash template. Amazing. So this is like, I am a happy customer if I'm going through these docs and trying to evaluate whether you use this. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> but I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not actually going to pay you. I, I, I was uh, a little no. misleading. Sorry, you're in. Oh, uh, well. Uh, <laughs> it, it was worth the effort of doing all those years of work just to... <laughs> Just to see whether you would pay me. <laughs> I would hypothetically pay if there were a way to do that. <laughs> As you say, that you, you want the quick feedback. So there are multiple ways to do that. So in the case of Elm Review, it's, it's a bit of a peculiar story where you have to uh, install the tool and then choose your configuration. So I have this uh, tried out section that tells you to use template with a predefined configuration but that's like a pretty specific use case in most cases like let's imagine you just have a dict package then just a simple example that you could copy paste into a REPL that would be su very sufficient like you, you don't need anything more and that's great because it also makes perfect um, for a perfect example for your function and it makes it very clear what, the, what something does so that's great. Um, in some cases that are more complex, you could have like a bigger code section. But if you want people to play with it, like it's something visual or it's something a little bit more complex, let's say you want to parse a CSV, then you could write an Ellie. The, the, the problem with the Ellie though is that sometimes, I think it always uses the latest version of your package. So older versions of your package will have documentation that is, that is broken. Maybe that will be fixed in, in the future. Um, but in, in the, the the essence of the, the idea is still still holds is 
you want something that people can just go to without having to install your package, without having to create a small new project to, to try things out. Like don't, you don't even have to force people to use Elm Reactor or something and they can play with it and they can see, does this fit? Does this work? Yes, no, let's go to the next, next package or let's try to fix my immediate problem that I was trying to solve. In the case of something like Elm GraphQL, that is like about code generation. That's a lot more complex. So I think what you do, or I know that you do, is to have a example project where you have a, a GraphQL schema from which you generate a lot of code. And you, if I remember correctly, you checked in the code so people can see it, can see the generated code. And that, that I find to be very important. Like um, I've seen it a few places where you could not, you had to go in yourself and regenerate those files to see how they were, um, what they looked like. But I want to see uh, if I'm curious or if I, if that's important to me, how those generated files will look like. So I think it's very important that you check them in so that they're available on GitHub and people can just see them. So that, that that's a very good thing that you've done. But yeah, sometimes you need a project. Sometimes you just need a code sample. Whatever makes it very easy for people to try it out uh, is good. Right. Yeah, as you say, because it involves code generation. If it's just a vanilla package, then if you can give an Ellie link, I really think you should. Because if you can give a simple self, like Ellie requires that it is self-contained. So if you can give that, it, it forces you to write a very simple example and it it gives people something shareable. They can play around with it and they can extract it into their own project from some working code, not some readme comment that they have to trust. They can actually see it and even tweak it and then integrate it into their project. I think that it's really good to have um, a variety of different types of, of content as well, because um, different people and over the course of doing different types of tasks, will want content presented in different ways. So like, for example, like the source code itself, it, even like you said, generated source code, perusing that, some types of users might want to say, well, what is this actually doing to understand it? And someone else might never want to look at that. They might want to look at an actual working example, even if it's not an Ellie because it's using generated code, they might want to see a deployed example that makes GraphQL requests and inspects the network tab. And someone else might want to play around with it locally and run the code generator. Someone else might want to read a short guide. And these are all different formats that people have, have different styles. And, you know, like some people read through the test folder. I actually pretty commonly will go through a project and read through the test folder. I consider that to be part of a project's documentation. Yeah, I agree. Part of the reason why I would like to see your generated code is because or for Elm GraphQL, for Elm GraphQL is because a code generator will produce Elm modules and that's the API that I have to work with usually. So whenever I choose to work with a package, I want to know the API. And if your API is the generated code, then I kind of need to see it. Otherwise it's very blurry or very fuzzy for me. Yes. Actually, that that makes me think like I I probably could 
take that elm.json file or the uh, docs.json file for the generated Elm GraphQL example that hits the GitHub API. What is the docs.json file? Docs.json file is an encapsulation of all of the exposed uh, values, types, and functions for a package along with their corresponding documentation. So that is what the package docs present to us in a nice format on a site. I could ship those. I could ship that and then uh, give people a link to documentation. That would be another cool way to present that information for a generated API uh, using Elm yeah. Doc Preview. Hmm. Aha, Elm Doc Preview. What, what the hell is that? Elm Doc Preview <laughs> is a, a very good tool. We're in the glossary. Uh, That's section. right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So Elm Doc Preview is a really nice tool that lets you on on your local machine. It lets you do a, a live reloading server that will show you your package documentation for an Elm package or compiler errors if there are any. It live reloads as you update your documentation. It's in, an invaluable tool for package authors, and you can also use it for displaying documentation for application code as well. You can uh, define an elm-application.json file and you can use it for in-house application documentation too, which is kind of interesting. Or you can use um, the Elm Doc Preview site to share links to people that will present your... If you check in the docs.json that you get by running elm make dash dash docs equals docs.json. That's how you generate the docs.json file for an Elm package. If you share that, uh, if you commit that docs.json, then you can share a live preview link of pending documentation. And that is a really valuable process for unpublished packages that you want to get feedback on, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a really valuable tool because often you're writing documentation and you're not sure how it's going to look like, or you, you write it and then you don't notice um, problems with it that will be obvious once you've published it. So for instance, like if you indent some some code in your, in your documentation, that will be displayed as Elm code. But if you don't intend, uh, indent it correctly, then it might not be shown that way. And then we'll look, everything will be on one line and it will be very ugly. So you don't want... To, to notice that after you've published it, you don't want to fix a documentation issue, republish, see that it's still not looking okay, and then republish and, and so on and so on. Um, there's all, there are also a few things that the Elm package website doesn't handle correctly, like uh, markdown tables. Great idea in theory. Uh, in practice, it, it's not looking great at all. So don't use those. Um, and if you use Elm Doc Preview, you will notice uh, that it's not going to look okay. And th there are a few issues, like if you have the add docs um, annotations that are done in slightly in incorrect ways, then they're not going to show up okay in the in the package website. So you also want to know about those early early on. So yeah, Elm Doc Preview, awesome tool to to write your docs and to 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 be able to read through them in a much easier way, like the way that your users would would. Uh, instead of having to go through your docs that are spread out all of your Elm code, which is not as, as great an experience. Right. It's also very motivating to see what needs documentation and what doesn't and 
just read through a live preview of your docs in that layout of, of a package documentation site. And, um, you know, for me, just like seeing, seeing something I don't like or that's missing makes me want to go write it. So I sort of need that little <laughs> kick to go do it. There's one thing where you, you have to have a valid docs.json file uh, to be able to preview your docs. And that means that you need to have written documentation for every exposed thing. In practice, like if you want to, to see it really quickly and without documenting some of the modules, then you're going to add like empty documentation uh, comments or to-dos, which is probably a little bit better because <laughs> it will be more obvious. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I usually do empty ones, but yeah, to-dos is a good idea. But I, I do it in tandem with your um, no missing documentation Elm review rule. I think that's what yeah. it's called. Docs.noMissing. Yeah, yeah we, we can talk about those afterwards. Because um, I, I kind of mentioned this before and we lo got lost in thought, I guess. Uh, but the one reason why we have good documentation in Elm is because there are sections like built in. So every module that you expose is a different page or different section, whatever, however you want to call those on the package website, meaning that not everything has to be in the readme, um, which I think is pretty good. Not sure it's, whether it's sufficient. In a lot of cases, yes. In some cases, maybe not. But it, it's a pretty good thing to have at least. So yeah, the, just the fact that you can separate some documentation from others is good. So for instance, if you have like one module which is a lot of tiny helpers or very with plenty of functions that are not very important to the rest of the API, then you can separate those into one module and they don't pollute uh, they don't waste space for the more more important uh, modules of your api so i think that's a pretty important part of why the docs are pretty good as a, as a as a starting point i i totally agree and just to um put a fine point on that mechanically what you're describing is so when you're writing an elm package you you can write doc comments which is just a special comment format you can write that for uh, your top level values, and you can also write that for the module. So the module has its docs, and each function and exposed value has its docs. You use an annotation in the top level modules docs to list out all of the exposed values that you want to document. So you can group them into sections. So you can say, wiring up a form. Here's the init update view function for the form. And then you can say, defining a field. Here's the checkbox and whatever functions for building a field. Um, and you can group those into sections using Markdown because the docs use Markdown format. So if you use the hash hash for a, an H2 heading, it separates it into uh, headings. And you can even link to those headings. So you can link somebody. You have to sort of like open up the inspector tool and click to it because it's not linked at the moment. but it gets the job done. Yeah, you kind of have to guess also what the name of the link is or what the href for the link is. I find it with the inspector. I uh, click on it with the web inspector, yeah, and then copy that. Like, you, you can try to guess it, but uh, if you have something 
with a few weird symbols like yeah just using inspector that's gonna you're gonna have a better time yeah but that's invaluable and i would say like i notice when i'm reading documentation i will very frequently like often the only thing i read in a, a whole page are the headings and that tells me whether or not something's relevant to me. So like, for example, like you really, you totally nailed this for, for my preferences of docs, but I think, I think this is a pretty general best practice for docs in, in Elm review. So the review.fix module in Elm review, the top level describes what are fixes, like what the heck is this thing, right? Uh, of course, there's a whole set of associated types and functions and everything, but upfront, it gives you a few things. So it says guidelines, right? That maybe that's the first thing you want to know. Like I'm, I'm writing a rule. When would I write a rule? But maybe I don't care about that right now. Maybe I'm trying to, like, I know I want to write a rule. I'm not looking for guidelines. I want to mechanically do that. Then you keep scrolling. You don't look at that heading, right? Mm, yep. When parentheses not to provide an automatic fix. If you are looking for the mechanics of it, again, you keep scrolling. Okay, now creating a fix. Ah, maybe that's what I want to do. And now you see the associated uh, types and, and values for creating a fix. So, yeah, I think, like, I think when writing documentation, it's important to keep in mind how people are going to consume it, which is they're going to skim, they're going to skip over headlines they don't care about. And that's okay. That's not a personal failing of yours that people don't read through top to bottom that's just not how people operate please don't skip the guidelines <laughs> <laughs> they're there for a reason i put them in the top for a reason <laughs> but it really is a, a choose your own adventure actually you're in before we recorded you and i were talking about zelda breath of the wild and tears of the kingdom and how cool this sort of choose your own adventure style of like an open world game is where you can bounce around you can whatever go straight to the final boss and skip all the powerful items and upgrades or you can do every possible side quest and learn every mechanic of the game before going to the final you can do it whatever order you want that's how people do docs they go in to do a job and they're not going to do it in the linear order you expect most of the time or they might yeah, first of all, like I think, uh, as you say, like you can skim through the headings, and I think it could be valuable to have like a table of contents at, at the top of every page or somewhere on the page. That, that could be that could be interesting. But yeah, so you you describe the the mechanics of how you write documentation for a module. So you, at the top of the, the module, you have a module documentation. So curly braces dash pipe some text and at the end the closing dash curly brace and in between those you, you write some text some headings and references to functions and the thing that i really like about this is you decide based on how you write or where you write those ad docs things how things will be presented so if you uh, the, the way that the docs are shown do not depend on where they're defined in the in the in the page because they 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 could be because in elm there's hoisting everywhere so you the elm could choose well this function is defined before this one so i'm going to show that one before but no it's you define by saying add docs function a and then later add docs function b that function a will be displayed before function b 
or and if you put it in in a section or after a section header then it's going to show up in that section and you can write those the things however you want so you can as you say you can write a story that, that's kind of like how i like to see it if you have the story to tell if like maybe you don't need to have a story for writing a dict package but but uh, for, for in, in the case of elm review there's a lot of things that i need to explain and some of them need to be first like guidelines which i think when they're not details um, should be read before you read the rest although you do whatever you want <laughs> but like i'm exp expecting that by default people will read things from top to bottom and you can yeah you can choose how things will be displayed and i found that to be very powerful and there's a cool thing that elm format does as well with add docs so whenever you you add uh, those add docs things it's it changes the expo uh, the exposing clause in your module exp the, the first line uh, in your module declaration so module module name exposing and then plenty of things so if you have add docs for those it will reformat them in the same order so if you have add docs abc and then next line add docs def then you will have two lines uh, abc and then def uh, in the exposing clause and i use that as well in my application code so if I, if i want to to make a let's say button module then I, I write the documentation so that the API is shown as a table of contents in a way at the very top of my file. So usually I have something like um, uh, a section how to create and I would have the type of the button. So add docs button and then also the init or the different variants for init. And then I have a section with all the with functions if I choose to do so and then a section on how to transform that to HTML, something like that. And then you can see in the exposing clause, well, button, comma, init, next line, with something, with something, with something, and at the end, to HTML. And you can even put those things onto more lines. So you have with large size, with small size, with medium size, and then on the next line with color red with color blue okay Th these are terrible examples but like you can the, the way that i try to do those is i write them so that every line deals with one thing so if you want to deal with the size of the button you have one line with all those if you want to talk about the color you have one line with all those maybe also the, the color type or something and i find that just to have this thing is already very valuable so that's what I do in my application code. Um, and that's why I push at work to, to have some documentation, even if it's just for that, because that makes things a lot simpler. Cool. When you say some documentation, do, are you mostly doing empty doc comments for internal things, or do you actually write something for these internal APIs? So if it's for application code, I usually don't write any documentation because that, it's not mandatory there. I try to have like better names. That's usually, usually things are pretty self-explanatory, especially because at work we have this way of working. We have several patterns that we use over and over. So once you know it, you don't have to explain things again. 
So it does not make sense to have to explain button dot with color when you have so many other modules where you have with color as well. It, it makes a lot more sense in in package code, I think, because people might be might be new to the pattern, and you don't you also don't need to have as much of a great documentation experience maybe at work, especially when you have colleagues that are right next to you, and because for application code. Time is more precious than for open source maintainers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, it would depend if there's that one part of the code base where new hires have to pair with the one person at the company who really actually knows how to use this thing in order to get up and running. Then actually, maybe that is a, a case where where it's good to do that. I would say like. Um, because I am a big fan of self-documenting code, and and I I will admit I you know very rarely write documentation for application code, and I don't think that's that's a bad thing. I would say like to me I I'm not a fan of writing documentation when a good name would achieve the same thing. I think like it's sort of like a, a going down the chain like. You should. I, I think you should always prefer communicating something through good naming and good API design when possible, and also through like a a good easy way to use something, a command line interface, an automation rather than a, a cookbook. Here are five different steps, right? If you that that might be calling out to automate it. So like, oh, I I was a good boy and I wrote some documentation for this. It's like, well. Maybe you weren't such a good boy. Maybe you should have automated that. It's also because, like, function names, that's what you see when you read code, right? You can go to the documentation in your ID, um, sometimes in, on GitHub, but or through searching your, for yourself uh, in the package website. But it's much easier to, to see the function name. And if that conveys the, the meaning, then that's all you need. When I write bash code or... Sorry, when I look for a command to do something and someone uh, on Stack Overflow says, oh, you should run this command, pipe this command, this uh, slash uh, pipe this command. And I'm like, I know none of these commands or <laughs> there are some of these flags that are new to me. Well, now I need to re read the documentation. So hopefully it's going to be good. But like for bash commands, everything is on in like one manual. It's one readme-ish document. So it's hard to find the information you want sometimes. And also like, there's just a lot of things. So yeah, good names is always preferable, but if you can have both, go for both. Right. And also, I mean, this is sort of maybe so obvious that we wouldn't think to mention it here because we sort of talk about this all the time, but the API design is part of the documentation. Where you look to find a function, what, how you group together. And it's actually uh, something I put a lot of thought into. It, it's actually quite difficult to get right. You know, do you have one big module with a bunch of things thrown in there? Do you have a lot of small modules that have things clearly separated? I think the way you, so the way that you organize things into Elm modules is really a, a part of how you're presenting these concepts to users what should they think of together? Um, but it's also an ergonomic thing. How many imports are they going to need? 
And also it's a, it's a sign if you have a lot of modules, is that a lot of concepts? If you have, if you have a lot of modules, but you end up having to import all of them every time, that might not be a great experience. So it's, it's really a delicate process to slice things up into a meaningful way, but you're presenting, you're presenting these ways of grouping things not just in terms of how you import them, but how you think of them and also how you read them. So because Elm package documentation is organized by module, it really is like the pages in your documentation. And I think that's a brilliant part of it. And again, back to your sort of opening sentiment about the baseline for quality in Elm documentation. I think that's part of it is things are grouped where a module is a page in your docs. And so you import one thing, you read the docs about that one thing you imported, and it's all grouped together logically. So, so I, that really shapes the way I write documentation. So for example, like in Elm Pages V3, backend task is a big part of it. So I have a backend task.env module, which is a pretty small module. It's got a couple of things for expecting to get an environment variable and errors that can come up when you do that or backend test.file that is a module that is you know knows how to read files that might have some front matter formatting in them or it might not read a raw file read a json file things like that it's a pretty mechanical module but it also sort of describes that this is something that elm pages allows you to do read read from files but it also references back to the backend task API because this is this sort of core abstraction. And uh, so this module has really, it breaks down the mental model. It breaks down a conceptual guide and it links out to all these different ways you could use it. So this is the opportunity to present these sort of key concepts and the API for how to use this basic building block. And then that in turn links out to all these more specific ways to use them. Like backendtask.custom is another huge piece, right? It's um, allowing you to run arbitrary code in a JavaScript environment that you can have access to and, and encode data to send to it, decode data to get back. It calls an async JavaScript function, right? That is, that's a big concept to chew off. If that was part of the backend task modules documentation, it would be kind of overwhelming. It would be bombarding the user with information to, to understand when they might just be like, what is a backend task? I'm new to Elm pages, but it's linked to, and there's a short set of bullet points at the top of backend task. So it describes what is a backend task in a concise one sentence way. And then, um, what are the ways you can use it? And you can click to those and choose your own adventure from there, or you can continue reading about backend tests. So I think the, the way you group these and organize them is really key. And again, it's like one module is one page in your documentation. So the title of that module, the things that are grouped there, the scope of it, how many concepts go there are all really important considerations. Yeah, and it's really hard for us to choose <laughs> what goes into each. Like, should should I split this thing into more modules? I know, for instance, like Elm UI has asked themselves like, the, the same question. Like, oh, I have all these these borders. Should that be their own modules uh, or module? Uh, 
or should it be in the same module as these other things? And sometimes it's clear cut, sometimes it's pretty hard or it's arbitrary. It actually requires some surprisingly nuanced technical tricks in the Elm code sometimes to support that. <laughs> like a common one being yeah. avoiding uh, circular imports. And um, so in Elm, the Elm compiler forbids things importing each other. Modules can't import something that imports them. And therefore, you often need to use this trick of sort of having something sco scoped where it's exposed to the package. What that means, we've talked about in previous episodes, you're, you have an elm.json file, which for an elm package uh, gives you a key of exposed modules. And that's where you list out the modules that will be part of your public API. But you can have some non-exposed modules, and those non-exposed modules allow you to have types and functions which are visible to your whole package, but not visible through the exposed package. And But you can expose them through type aliases, which is why you'll sometimes see type alias element equals element. What does that mean? Well, it's, yeah. a, it's a package trick. private one. <laughs> yeah, it's a trick. Yeah. And so that means you have a lot of possibilities for where you can expose something. Which module do you expose that type alias from? It could be, it could be a lot of different ones, but I think there is something really key. Evan has talked about this in, I think his talk growing Elm modules. Wait, no, sorry. Uh, life of a file. Evan's talk, life of a file. He talks about how there's something to how you grow and expand a, an Elm module that it's centered around a type. And I think that's really true. Like it should be usually one central type and some key things on how to use that thing. You know, I mean, something like a, a data structure would be, a, you know, a queue structure or a stack or something like that would be an obvious example of that, but also backend task. But backend task, again, it's subtle because there are other ways to consume a backend task, like backend tasks.custom. So that's a module associated with that same backend task type, but it's some helpers that actually aren't built around a specific type. So it's it's not always clear cut. While we're on the topic of things that are too basic to mention, but let's mention them anyway, one reason why Elm Good Docs are great is because they're simple or because Elm code is simple. Like, uh, I'm not gonna praise it uh, even more than I usually do, but <laughs> do I? <laughs> Uh, but the, the the thing is like uh, whenever you you have simple code like a function that adds two numbers, well you have a the, the function you have a code sample. So you, if you say add five seven, uh, you can show that it does twelve uh, returns twelve, and that's it. Like there are no side effects, there are no mutations. Like this is all that that your functions uh, your function does. So it's really easy to understand. Whereas in, in languages like JavaScript, if you look for the documentation for arrays, the the list type, list-like type, and not the erasing something. So if you do arrays dot, uh, if you dot, do dot sort on an array, it's gonna mutate it, and that's something that can be hard to convey without mentioning it explicitly. Uh, and that can be surprising as well. Uh, but 
you don't have those things in Elm. So things are pretty simple. And also like every function shows the type annotation. And that's very valuable as well because a type annotation gives a lot of information. And if you don't have it, which is again, the case in JavaScript often less so with TypeScript nowadays, um, well, yeah, you have a lot more information that you can uh, use to, to understand what it does. So um, Elm is simple and that has great benefits, basically. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like if you're, if you're working with a different language, JavaScript, Ruby, uh, it's very common, like, is this nullable? Uh, is it, which of course, TypeScript somewhat helps with, but only somewhat. How many arguments does this take? If I pass in zero arguments, one argument, two arguments, are there different variadic forms of this, uh, you know, different arities for this function? Is it going to ha- return different types based on the input I give it? Is it going to mutate the input I give it or change some global thing or perform some f- side effect? Is it going to do one thing if I pass in an object and another thing if I pass in a string and another thing if I pass in a buffer and another thing if I pass in a promise? Does is, it is return be, a promise it, it, or a non-promise? Is there going to be any effects if I just import this file also? Right. Uh, can it throw an exception? Yeah, what are the possible crashes that this can have? Right, right. All of these things, they are just non-existent in Elm. So I, I couldn't agree more. It's like the explicitness already, like your confidence in navigating an API is so much higher from just the bare minimum documentation in an Elm package. Also I mentioned, like if you have a code example, like add 5.7 and you get a line underneath that says this return seven, there's a, like often what you will see is dash dash greater than. So it basically does an arrow and then seven. And there's a tool which is called Elm Verify Examples that will turn those um, code samples, code examples into actual tests. So you can be sure that your code sample is correct, that it returns the what, what you said it did. So that's pretty powerful as well. I, I, I really wish I could use this for Elm Review in some way. <laughs> I know. I, I wish that it could verify that things compile, but unfortunately it doesn't at the moment. But um, it, is a, it is a very valuable tool. Also, um, on the topic of code snippets, I think that's also huge. Um, just having code snippets, example, output. Like when you're navigating functions in an API... Again, you want to equip the user with what is the relevant information they're going to need. And really, even if it seems obvious from the type signature, having an example is very useful. It's just, it demystifies it and it makes it feel real. And it's also an opportunity to give an example use case. So I think, you know, in my opinion, I feel very strongly that every example is an opportunity to demonstrate a meaningful use case. Uh, which is why I, you know, I, I try really hard to avoid toy examples, foobarbaz, and instead try to illustrate why would I, why would I use this feature, you know, with, with real world use cases, because now you're using that opportunity to convey information in a richer way. People are taking the same amount of time to read through something, but you've now conveyed 
the kinds of things this tool would be helpful for and best practices for using it. Yeah, this is something that I, I do purposefully in Elm Reviews documentation is for every f- function that uh, you can use to, to create, to define a visitor or something, I add a example rule. So that, that's a lot of code potentially, but like you can see, oh, I could use this for this or I, this, and also this is how you use it. But if you just go through documentation, you can already, already just copy paste some rules and adapt them to your needs potentially. And I found that to be pretty interesting. Yeah, as, as an Elm review user, I, I find that extremely valuable. And also just imagine like looking at with simple declaration visitor and you're seeing, okay, it takes a function, no declaration returns list of error and a module rule schema and it returns a module rule schema with has at least one visitor. It's like, that's okay. Yes, that's telling me some some information that's useful, but without an example. Really hard to use, yeah. Yeah, like, okay, well, what do I do with no declaration? Well, actually, what what you're most probably going to do with with a node declaration is you're going to do case node.value node of, and then you're going to enumerate the different declaration types, which are imported from this module. Also, I'm a big fan of being explicit about the imports because yeah, <laughs> you want you want to make it clear. So, and actually, Elm Verify examples does not require you to qualify the module you're using, but I prefer to be explicit about using unqualified uh, module or uh, qualified module references. So, putting the module name before explicitly, and putting the import to the module itself, even the one I'm documenting. It just makes it more copy-pasteable and more explicit. Exactly, yeah. And also, like, when you don't qualify something uh, in, your, in your example, it can be hard to know whether some, the function that you're referencing is defined in this file, which in some cases it will be, or if it's a, a value that was that is somewhere else in the code snippet or that is just omitted because it's too complex to, to, to do for the example or too annoying to do. But if you qualify it, then it's a lot more explicit. And as you say, copy-pasteable, understandable. And we usually, uh, in the ARM community, advise for qualified imports anyway. So let's use that in the examples anyway. It is, that, that's my take, at least. And I, I know you agree with it, but... Yes. And also, it should be as idiomatic as possible in every way. Now, of course... People do have different styles, and there's nothing wrong with that. Some people really like using unqualified imports in certain cases, and that's that's totally fine. But I think that it's important to try to write in an idiomatic format. Like, for example, how if you're going to use an import alias, use that everywhere and use it consistently in your examples. Because the thing is, people will actually, everybody who uses your package will probably use that same example that you use because you're sort of defining a convention whether or not you realize it and so you should put some thought into how you want to import things not just like well for the case of this example i'm going to use a one letter import or you know something like that people take it and run with it also uh so naming things is important i am personally a fan of giving meaningful names to type variables now Mm, yep 
in the case of, you know, dict comparable A, that might be fine. I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> I think that if it's for something generic, like purposefully generic and extremely generic, then A is just fine. If it's for functions like map, where you have a something A that transforms it to something B, that's very fine as well because people understand it. If it's for anything else where you have more insights um, about the, the type variable, what it will hold or what it, will, what it does represent, then I would use that instead when possible. Right. Yeah, like in the Elm review docs, I see you, um, you know, for example, schema states, I think. Schema, exactly. Schema state, module context. So that is, and, and you use the naming consistently. So at least that, that gives people a sense of what, what name to use. I'm trying to remember in Elm GraphQL, I, I made a change as well at some point where I was not using a type variable. I didn't have a good name for this type variable and it actually made it a lot harder for people to understand the context. What did I name it? The scope. Okay. So yeah. So in Elm GraphQL, a selection set decodes to a value and it has a scope. The scope is a phantom type. This is a confusing concept to introduce to people, right? Some people might not have used a phantom type. Some people might have used a phantom type, but might not understand how that applies to the concept of GraphQL. So a selection set, you know, we've discussed in the past, it is uh, scoped so that you can't, um, you know, if, if you are able to take a selection set that represents getting the first name in the scope of a user, you can't get the first name in the scope of a product. And so the scope phantom type variable defines the scope of your selection. So I tried to use domain language there, and I, I think that's really key. Yeah, the, the type variable especially is usually something a little bit more abstract. So especially if it's used to, to represent some constraints, then it's worth giving, giving it a good name. Like even if it's just constraints, I don't know, which I think I use some, somewhere maybe. Yeah. And naming is also a process. You can always iterate to get a better name. You don't have to get everything around the first try. I think it's really important to, to notice where do you find friction as you're reading things? Where, where are you finding that you're conflicted about what names to use? You don't have a clear concept in, in your head of what term to use for something. Where are people getting confused? Where are you finding it difficult explaining a concept to other people? I think it's important to like deliberately invest time in giving names to these abstractions and ideas and iterating on names there. So those are, those are things to look for. Also getting feedback from users is key, of course. You mentioned at the beginning that whenever you thought about binary documentation, you were thinking about virus block. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as you say, writing documentation is sometimes not the most fun part and it, it can be very hard. Like also like how much should I detail? What should I detail? It, it, it's hard sometimes. Uh, but in some cases, things are just super complex to explain. Like I, I remember when preparing for Elm Review V2, I had an API to merge 
module module context um, into a project context or something it, like the most complex part of Elm Reviews API is how you mingle project context and module context. And I found that to be very hard to explain. Like uh, it took me like plenty of paragraphs and I was like, yeah, this is still not amazing. And at some point I figured out a different API for it and it was much easier to explain. So sometimes the solution to when you have trouble explaining something is to change the API. Like you're explaining something that is too complex and you should try to find a simpler way. So that was the the pain points that I had once. And the yeah, solution was do something different. And as soon as you see, oh, now it's much easier to explain. Well, that's a pretty good sign that it's a good API, probably. Exactly. Which for the, for the same reason, that's why, uh, you know, if, if you find yourself writing documentation, it can be a crutch because maybe you should have been documenting something. Maybe a hard to explain concept, maybe lots of documentation is a crutch for making the concept easier to understand, making the API simpler. So it should always be documentation should support something that's intuitive on its own, ideally. And you're going to have the best time when you're always considering changing something to make it simpler not just documenting what you already have and when you count then yeah documentation makes sense like if something is done a specific way for performance or because there's a bug in some package uh, some other package or the web browser doesn't work as you would expect then yeah add the documentation uh, comment that says this is the reason why something like is this way right right yeah i always love the scene in the show silicon valley when they're getting user feedback uh on the product and then the ceo is watching through this like blind mirror thing and uh watches the user and users in frustration improperly using the product and he goes in and corrects them and tells them how they're all using it wrong (laughs) right but of course like feedback is only as good as your willingness to listen to it. So I think you, um, not that you should necessarily do directly what everybody tells you you should do, right? That's that's not the right answer either. But by the way, you should not listen to this episode. We only give garbage uh, information. So uh, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, uh, when you're getting feedback, it's telling you something. And that's, that's the that's the fine line there is like um, understanding that people are telling you pain points and hearing hearing that they have a pain point if some people are trying to write documentation i also have a few elm review rules that can be helpful for that Uh, so there's a package called jfm angles slash elm review documentation which has four rules um some more applicable to uh, than others so there's one that is called docs.nomissing, which we mentioned before, uh, which reports missing or empty documentation. So th- these rules can be used for application, uh, but they can also be used for packages. And in this case, like it, for packages, it will report when it's missing, just like the ARM compiler would, but it also reports empty documentation, which I think is something we should try to avoid as much as possible. I think you disagree with it sometimes. <laughs> I personally disagree with it for map 
two, map three, map four, map five. Yeah, so, 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 so my reasoning is that I see this quite often that people document map, they document map two because it's more complex, and then they don't document map three. So the documentation is empty. And same for map five, etc. And what the thing is like, your documentation can be found in the package documentation, but it can also be found in the ID. And if you hover map two, you get a helpful documentation comment. But if you hover map three, then you have nothing. And that's not very helpful in my opinion. So I would much rather have map three say, refer to the documentation of I map see. two. Okay, nice. Because now you can just, you can you know where to look at. Potentially you can even cl click on it. So so that's why docs not no missing reports empty documentation. Oh cool. Maybe I could even make an Elm review rule to automatically do that for my map n functions. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. That'd be fine. There's also a docs.review at docs uh, rule which is a yes. bit of a weird name. <laughs> yeah, but I use it and it's it saved me in some situations. So thank you for yeah. that. So, so, so the we mentioned the at docs annotations, and there are quite a few ways where you can use them, where the package documentation will not handle them correctly, like that. The, the compiler will usually tell you, "Hey, you're missing at docs, or you're having at docs that are not expected." But then this this rule will also report the, uh, those for when you use it in applications, because the Elm compiler will not help you there. But there's also cases where, uh, for instance, if you indent at docs, or if you or if you put it in at the very first line of your uh, module documentation, then your docs will not be uh, not look as expected. So if, if you if you if your entire module documentation is uh, the curly braces, whatever, at docs something, then that is literally what you will see at docs something. That's your entire documentation. And uh, I've seen this over and over again, so I've made an Elm review rule that reports about those. Uh, and there's a few other gotchas uh, that are similar to that. Well, so like one of the ones that has saved me many times, I actually wish that the IDE could do this for me automatically, but when I rename a module, I sometimes... Uh, most times, honestly, miss that in renaming my, my links within my docs. And that Elm review rule catches it for me. If it's pointing to a module which no longer exists, it catches that. No, it doesn't. That's the third rule. That's Okay, yes. You're, you're making a nice segue. <laughs> yeah, at least. So that's docs.review links and sections. So that, that one is also very interesting. Because, yeah, as you say, like you link from one module to another, or from the readme to another module. And yeah, if you rename something, then things are broken. Or if you make a typo, then things are broken and you don't want your users to, to let you know about that. So this rule lets you know about it. Uh, it also reports the um, ambiguous links. So if you have a section, a markdown section, uh, so hashtag, hashtag init, and you have a function called init, then they will have the same href. Y yeah name it i think it's like the name under the hood it's the, the same anchor name attribute yeah yeah so uh, whenever you will link to that it will go to the the first one and you wouldn't you ideally want to have the, the them to be uh different like 
not not ambiguous. So this will also report that. I think that's the one that reports it. But yeah, so, something reports it. And then there's another one that is docs.uptodate readme links, where the, the readme is a bit of a peculiar file um, because you can see it on GitHub and you can see it's on the package website. And depending on how you do the links, they will be up to date or not up to date. Usually what people do is they link to the package website from the readme and they use slash latest to, to specify the version, which works, but not once you release a new version. Now your, your previous version of your package, the, the readme will link to a, a function on the latest version. And that fun that function might not exist anymore, so that, that that's a problem. Um, so this helps replace those latest by the current version of your Elm JSON file of, of your of your version defined in your Elm JSON. And whenever you you upgrade it, uh, you up, you upgrade your version, it will auto auto fix those. So that's one reason um, that I have a very good time bumping my packages and keeping these links uh, up to date. Is I bump the version, I run this rule, and all my links are correct again. And that's just very nice. It, it's definitely an example of something that is the correct thing to do, but in practice, without automation, something that people just would not do. It wouldn't be tenable. So it's great. Yeah, and I remember that before I made this rule, it was like, well, what should we do? And there was no clear-cut answer. Um, so it, those are the four rules that are there. Um, if you can think of another one, let me know. Uh, I definitely think there are more things to, to be done. Yeah, and I mean, also somewhat relevant would be the uh, for, forbidden keywords, is it? Uh, for checking for things like to-dos. Uh, to-do or string, is that what it is? To-do? No, that's that's different. Yeah, there's a, a package called sparks.p slash elmreview forbidden words, where you can... Tell it, please report all, all usages of like to do or replace me. And this is the, whenever you make an Elm review package, uh, you have this rule with replace me already in there. So whenever you try to write to write replace me with to as a placeholder for some documentation, for instance, uh, this rule will at some point let you know, hey, you should replace this. So that's that's very useful as well. Yeah, I also have a, a GitHub template called the Elm Package Starter, and um, this uses most of these Elm review rules, and I've found it pretty nice for bootstrapping a quick Elm package. Um, and it also links to a project of mine, which we've talked about in the past, the Idiomatic Elm Package Guide, which sort of like lays out, I think, like a, a set of principles for how to organize your readme and what format to manage a change log and some like boring but important things like i think these are really important um you know having a change log if you create a new version of a package people are going to be wondering what what changed and having a an obvious format that is something you would expect across packages same with an examples folder like when people you know people in the elm community if they've kind of been around for a little while and seen some some packages they're probably going to expect the github project to have an examples folder they're probably going to expect you know to to have a, a link to the the package from the github readme they're 
you know, probably going to expect to have a test suite with a badge that shows whether the test suite is passing. Some some boring things like this that I think are, are worth having. Yeah. But by the way, like the, the fact that you have the change log and sometimes the contributing um, instructions in the readme, that's something that I see sometimes and I don't think that's the place for the readme. Uh, especially because there there are some standards where you have uh, a file called changelog all caps or yeah, usually all caps .md and one called contributing and there's also license and all those plenty of other files like that. Yes, and those are meaningful to GitHub and to Elm to to the Elm compiler too. The license file, for example, is required by Elm. Yeah, I would like it if if the changelog was maybe also. It was also special, at least was linked to in the package documentation. But yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you could, uh, man, wouldn't that be cool if you could kind of show the Elm diff, if you could have some syntax for the changelog where you could say like the breaking changes because Elm diff, when you do an Elm bump, it knows the breaking changes. And if you could document how it changed or why it changed, that would be really cool. Yeah, like just see, just being able to see the the diff on the website, I guess, on the package website between two versions, that would be nice as well. Because often, like I see that a new package has been released on Slack, and I watch it, uh, I open it on my phone, and I'm like, oh well, what has changed since the last version? Well, let me open up my comp- my laptop and run Elm diff on the, in a terminal. Yeah. That is very useful, but it's not always a great experience. Like um, I'm not always on a computer. So another thing that is not always clear cut is like what belongs in the package docs and what belongs in some external place, either the readme, a separate document in GitHub or an external site. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever find reason for having something that's not included in the readme or the Elm package docs? Yeah, um, so Elm Review, for instance, has, um, well, I'm, I say for instance, but all of my packages are Elm Review related. <laughs> Maybe one day I will have something else, but uh, for now they're all Elm Review related. Wow. After so many years of work, still only Elm Review. <laughs> God. Well, it's focus. Yeah, I, I guess. Well, and packages not that, that I'm not maintaining. So there is a document, for instance, for how to integrate Elm Review into other places like IDs or bots or something. So there's a documentation that, that describes how the CLI uh, outputs some format that it can be understood by computers. Uh, and that is not uh, relevant to the API. Like, so the Elm Review package, uh, the Elm package, is meant to be used by people who write rules or who configure their Elm review configuration. Everything else makes little sense. There's still like all the how to get started, how to configure, how to install Elm review, which is like an additional section because there's some NPM involved. But yeah, I think there are some cases where you would need other things. The main one that I can think of and that does not necessarily fit the Elm package website very well is a guide. And that that's something that you hear sometimes as well on, on the Elm Slack is that 
people see the the Elm guide and then they wonder, oh, well, how do I learn more or how do I know which functions exist? And we kind of assume that they went to the package website and look at Elm core or they looked at other packages and then know how to, to read that uh, package website, which is given once you've got some experience with it. But like sometimes you want to know about the about tab or about page on a package and that has some relevant information. Uh, but once if you haven't browsed around, then you don't know about it. So yeah, having like the Elm package website uh, with all the API plus a way to write a guide, that would be pretty nice. So for instance, for Elm view, there's a lot of things that I try to teach that are not necessarily related to the API. And that I, that's why my documentation is really long. Can you think of an example? Like, would it be conceptually how an Elm review, how it traverses things with visitors or something like that? Potentially, yeah. That's an implementation detail that would be worth explaining somewhere. So, for instance, if you want to explain, like, performance considerations, like, you should use this function this way and not this way, or you should have this architecture, then if that doesn't fit specifically with one function, then or in one module, then it's a bit hard to to know where to place it. Also, just like guidelines on how to make great rules is at the beginning of the review the rule uh, module, which is the main one. But it, like it could be its own page, right? Or and also, for instance, like if you have a guide, then you can actually do a tutorial, which I, I kind of try to do. And this is kind of why I say like write your own story, because I'm in a way making a tutorial. But may, maybe the way that the docs are f rendered, it doesn't always make for the greatest experience. Like if I did not have to write all the API in the same page, then I would write it differently. And I would probably... Yeah, I like the way you're framing that. I mean, I think like the example of performance tuning, a, a review rule or something like that is in that case, it gets to the point you were making earlier about who's the audience and, you know, the audience for very low level details of some JSON format of something is different than the audience of how do I write a review rule? Maybe I want to make sure I'm using this internal API in our application in a particular way. Well, I don't really care about perform these performance considerations or this low-level JSON format right now. So it's, it's a different audience, and you don't want to lump all those together. It's going to be very confusing. Mm -hmm. I, th I think maybe if the package website just picked up on like uh, all the markdown files in a documentation folder or something like that, or something that is explicitly defined in the Elm JSON file. That could work very well. Yeah. Georges Boris has talked about this idea with, you know, Elm book and and his inspiration from the Elixir documentation where they have both API documentation and sort of guides or markdown pages side by side. So, yeah, I I think I think you're right that there are certainly cases. I mean, like like you mentioned this example of you know, Elm browser 
and then the Elm architecture in the Elm guide, right? Like a user might go to the Elm browser docs or some core package and expect a guide, but actually that lives somewhere else. And, um, but, but that does make sense. Like it would be too, too much for the scope of it to introduce the Elm programming language and the Elm architecture all in the inline module docs. And it doesn't give you enough granularity. So in that case, having these conceptual overviews doesn't fit there. Also tutorials, like you might have a mini tutorial, but you don't want to have a very ambitious tutorial that requires a lot of setup and a lot of steps and a lot of do-it-yourself exercises in line in your module docs. It's just, they should be very narrowly scoped. So something like that definitely belongs in an external tool, which some package authors have external sites. Elm Pages has an external doc site and, you know, it covers things like just a conceptual overview of Elm Pages because the scope of it is very large and it wouldn't fit neatly in one module documentation uh, page. Or things that happen around generated code. What module do you put that in? It's describing a set of generated modules. So, there's like a file structure document that talks about navigating the file structure of an Elm Pages application and what sort of modules are generated from that. You know, certain things about the philosophy and the architecture and diagrams for the architecture, the adapter API, which allows you to uh, adapt to different deployment and hosting platforms. So, yeah, so there's definitely, I mean, my rule of thumb is if something fits neatly in, in a modules docs, put it there. For example, backend task, I could put it in a separate, you know, it, it, it almost wants to be part of the Elm pages docs for elm-pages.com slash docs. Like I almost want it in the listing there, but it can fit in a module doc. So I put it there instead. There's also like, you can have a website, like a custom website where it says blazingly fast, you know, the obvious catchphrase, where you can just make it look good. Like just marketing-wise, the package's website is not super handsome. Like it's a good-looking website. It's a very simple website. But you're not putting, like marketing-wise, the JavaScript people will tell you, hey, this is shit. Like my, my Vite package looks the same as the uh, parcel package uh, how can i make it make, make it obvious that this one is better without being able to choose my colors for my package documentation page right so uh, i think there's also a case where you want to have a dedicated website i'm not sure how much overlap there is uh, and when you want to have a additional when you want to have a website and package documentation and a guide and how you mix and match them together. So uh, I'm kind of used to have only the package website and therefore if new opportunities open up to me, like having the ability to write a guide, I'm not sure how, how I will write the documentation yet. There are definitely certain things that fit better in a custom site. Like you said, I mean, having more control over the styling, but also if you want to have a showcase or certain community things like in the Elm Pages site, I have something that lets you submit. There's a button to submit to the showcase. It uses 
Airtable and it pulls data from that API live or, you know, yeah, a blog. Should you have a blog hosted on the Elm package site? Probably not. Yeah, you, sh- you also maybe want to have like release notes that are um, displayed nicely, uh, news, blogs. And yeah, as you say, like th- things that are not that are not relevant to the API, but that are relevant to the package, like how many people use this, who are who is sponsoring this package, or yeah, things like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in general, there are all these different rich formats. I think they all serve their needs. Having a custom blog serves its need. Having Elm package docs does its job extremely well. And having them both is really u- useful. Things like GitHub discussions, GitHub issues, pull requests, uh, conference talks, podcast episodes. All these things are great sources of information in different formats that serve different purposes. A GitHub discussion is a great place to showcase ideas and community projects and get feedback on things and discuss specking things out or making decisions or or documenting history about something. Package docs are not a good place for that. But if there's some quirky thing that people are frequently asking about, go ahead and link to that GitHub discussion thread that talks about the history and the spec and why that decision was made. So I think um, this model of linking out to a lot of different resources, keeping things very concise and focused on one purpose. But then if you're on this page and you're looking for something more, let me throw some links your way just in case. That's hugely valuable. I don't think you can understate like the, the power of just and even just linking to in between different module pages in an Elm package is Absolutely. huge. I yeah. think mm-hmm. another great thing is that whenever you have a function, it has a type annotation, and those the type annotation has um, references different types. And whenever you have a type that is defined in your package, you can that becomes a link, so you can click on it, and now you can see where that was defined. And th- that is very valuable. So if you can add more links for things that are not done that way, that's very valuable. I agree. Yeah. Also, on a related note, I think uh, we all have the curse of knowledge, especially as you know, authors of packages where um, we have trouble understanding what it would be like navigating something because we know those things. So it's hard to revert back to a state of not knowing those things and understand not to mention uh different different things will be confusing for different users coming from different avenues and different ways of thinking about things so but i think uh i think it's a really good practice to uh get in the habit of understanding what assumptions you're making and like there are certain habits that i've tried to build personally where i'll try to notice when i'm making assumptions so like one easy one is an acronym. If you're mentioning an acronym, just spell it out. Just say what the acronym stands for. You can use the acronym, but introduce at least what it what it stands for first. Yeah, and you can even like if it's a concept like uh, I don't know uh, the cap theorem, then you you can link to a Wikipedia page or something that talks about that, or a blog post that has more information and simplifies, it vulgarizes the concept. Because sometimes Wikipedia is not very, very nice, especially for right. mathematical things. 
Link yeah. to the Monad page. Ah. Right, right. Yeah, but exactly. Any any terms like that that might require some specific dom domain knowledge, just go ahead and link to it. You know, if you're talking about a type from a from a package, link to that external Elm package or NPM package or whatever it might be. I also find that sometimes like when I'm when I'm writing out docs, I will say if I'm using the word it or that or this, sometimes I'm like, wait a minute, are they going to know what I'm referring to? Because I just covered a lot of things. And sometimes instead of it, I'll say, you know, the the backend task type. And so now, so now it's like, okay, backend tasks allow you to do da 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 da. It gives you, you know, I'll just say backend task also, you know, because it's very subtle, but I I think that people can get tripped up on small details like this. So be very explicit. Show all of your imports. Show your work. Link to things. Define your terms. Just like go overboard with those things. Yeah. Also, if you re-mention the the backend task, you can make it a link, so people don't have to go back to the very top of the page to find the link to backend task. So that's also quite nice. And also like try to avoid words like just or simple or like they make sense in some cases, but you have to be careful about those. Like what, what seems simple to you or easy to you is not necessarily the case for other people. Although simple is objective, but you need to have watched Rich Hickey's talk about that. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. I think also being, um, straightforward and, you know, not, saying like necessarily this is the best way to do this but saying these are the decisions i think it's really good to be clear and explicit these are decisions i believe these are pros of these this set of decisions perhaps here are some cons about this set of decisions but these are the decisions this is the philosophy i think we talked about this in our elm radio episode of how and when to write an elm package but uh you know i think it's really valuable to just be upfront with people and tell them because you can't you can't do everything you can't make every you know i'll make every single trade-off out there no like a trade-off <laughs> you have to trade something which one do you want to choose so just don't mince words go make some bold decisions because and allow for different approaches to coexist that make different versions of those trade-offs and so you don't have to take that responsibility of solving every problem. Yeah. Or try to find a novel way that solves everything in a nice way, which is usually what we end up doing in the Elm world somehow, often with success. And I guess the success, the failures are not published or, but <laughs> it's true. It's true. There's a bias yeah. there. Definitely. Yeah. It depends. It depends on the example, I guess, like Elm review, does a great job sort of making the best of both worlds. Whereas something like Elm GraphQL inherently there's a decision. Do you have a query builder style or a generator style that uh, spits out code for a specific GraphQL query? Those are trade-offs that there's, you just have to pick one and say, we think there are merits to this approach, but we can't, <laughs> make a perfect solution that makes everybody happy because there are, there are trade-offs. Well, anything else we should point people to for uh, writing great docs? 
I think we've already given a lot of great tools and links, so you can see those in the show notes. Try to do your best. Try to make it uh, to to make it understandable by other people. Ask for feedback and iterate. Like you're not gonna get it, things right the first time. You're gonna have typos. You're gonna have things that are not clear, and that's fine. Just one thing: try to avoid breaking changes as much as possible. But <laughs> it's not a big deal either. Yeah, and and listen to your users. And um, I uh, I I skimmed a little bit through a book that I had heard about called Docs for Developers, and I I quite liked uh, what I read. And it was uh, in a nice skimmable format. And they even talked about the importance of being skimmable, which uh, is near and dear to my heart as a uh, reader of some portion of documentation. Uh, so I would definitely recommend checking that out. Yeah, but you, but you don't know why it's important to, for things to be skimmable because you've skimmed that, right? That's right. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. Just want to be clear about that. All right. All right. Well, you're in. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs>